take a minute to say hi and welcome to everybody joining us from Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you with us on this wet morning. We're in a series called Christianity Illustrated in which we're looking at a few parables that Jesus tells from the different gospels. Those parables are stories with a point and a purpose. Jesus doesn't tell the stories just to entertain He tells the story so that we would experience change as we understand some realities about who he is, how he wants us to live, etc. And if you remember, last week I gave you a little bit of a primer, some helpful hints in how to read the parables because they're not like normal stories you would read. They're not like fairy tales. They're not like fiction or nonfiction. Here's how parables work. Parables are not fables which are made up where crazy things happen. Animals talk, crazy things happen. These stories that Jesus tells are true to life. That doesn't mean they actually happen, but it means they could have happened. They're kind of true to life. They're not allegories where every single detail lines up with a spiritual reality. Maybe there are some correlations and maybe they are not. Parables are intended to reveal some things, but also conceal some things. And the way that revelation happens is when we read ourselves into the story. That's when our eyes are open. That's when the revelation happens. We also said parables fall into different categories. There are parables about wisdom and parables about salvation, parables about judgment, lots of different parables. And we're seeking to pick a couple parables from each of the categories over the next few weeks. Well, this past week I was reading a book and the book kind of prompted me to tell you a parable. I'm going to kind of tweak it a little bit. It wasn't actually a parable, but I'm going to make it into a parable. So here's how, to, here's how it goes. Terry called Gary to get some information. So Terry dials Gary's phone number. Gary doesn't answer, but the answering machine comes on. And this is what Terry heard. You may think that this is an answering machine, but it's not. This is a questioning machine. And two very important questions now you need to answer. Who are you and what do you want? Lest you think they are trivial, nonsensical questions, realize that more than 95% of the population has never taken the time to answer either question. That's pretty good, right? Um, Notice, in order for it not to just be a stupid story about an answering machine being called a questioning machine, Yeah, when you ask the question, so who are you? Not who are you pretending to be, not who do you want to be, not who do you aspire to be, not who are you trying to be, but who are you really? And what do you really want? What are you living for in life? What have you set the crosshairs of your life on and you're dedicating all your time and energy and resource to get it? What's your goal? But when you read yourself into that little story, all of a sudden the questions become rather profound. That's kind of what Jesus does with the parables. He tells a story that's true to life. And when we read ourselves into it, 
we're left with some questions. We're left with some wrestling reflection that really can bring change in our lives. Well, the story that we're going to look at this morning, the one Jesus tells, is found in Luke chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 13. Last week, we're in Luke 14. We're going to turn back one chapter, and we're going to look at the narrow door parable from Luke 13. If you're using your phone, if you're using a tablet, whatever, you can find that, grab a Bible in the seat rack, the narrow door parable. So I'm going to kind of read through it. Then we're going to walk through it a little more slowly, tease out a couple lessons, and then I don't know if the Phillies will play, but you can watch the Sixers, all right? So here we go. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22. Listen to the parable. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Lots of surprises in that parable. Lots of shocking surprises. But before we get to the surprises, let me ask, did you notice anything familiar in the parable? If you were here last week, hopefully you saw at least a couple familiar things. First of all, did you notice that feast is used again? I told you last week that it's a common metaphor for salvation, for acceptance with God, for heaven, for the kingdom, to think of a party. Here we have it again. They're gonna take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. God's preparing a party. This is not drudgery. This is not live inside, the, live inside the rules and all the bounds, don't color outside the lines, live a miserable life. It's a celebration and a party. Here it is again. God's preparing a feast and there are some that will be invited and enter the feast. It's a celebration. Oh, did you also notice that Jesus is not speaking from prepared remarks? Like last week, Jesus didn't show up at the banquet and all of a sudden just start preaching a sermon about the wedding banquet and feast. No, he was responding to a comment. The guy next to him at the banquet said, Jesus, what do you think? Blessed are all those that are gonna feast in the kingdom. And then Jesus tells the story. This week, Jesus is answering a question. So Jesus is not preaching a sermon and all of a sudden he begins to tell a story about a narrow door. No, somebody comes up to him and says, hey, Jesus, by the way, Are only a few people going to be saved? Are only a few people going to be rescued from their hopeless, helpless situation? Are only a few people going to find acceptance with God? Only a few people make the celebration? Only a few people make the kingdom in the feast? Only a few people make it to the party? And then Jesus tells the parable in response to the question. So both of the parables, last week's and this week's, come in conversation. 
Jesus is engaged in conversation, and rather than just speak to the comment in principles, rather than respond to the question with a series of bullet points, Jesus tells a story on both occasions. Now, some of you are sitting there saying, well, I know a few familiar other, I know a few other familiar things from the story. Didn't Jesus also talk about a narrow door somewhere else? Yeah, we'll get to that. Didn't Jesus even call himself a door one time? Yeah, we'll get to that. But the familiar things I wanted you to notice are the feast and the question. And after the feast and after the question, Jesus then answers with surprises. There are actually six of them, almost one per verse. So we're gonna kind of go through the six surprises verse by verse. So remember, here's the context again. Jesus is traveling from town to town, village to village, making his way to Jerusalem, Luke says. Now what's gonna happen in Jerusalem? Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be falsely charged, falsely convicted, and he's going to be executed. And on the Sunday following his crucifixion, he's going to be raised from the dead. Jesus is moving to Jerusalem and the climax of his mission. That's the context of what's happening in Luke 13. He's making his way to Jerusalem. And while he's on his way, Luke's out, he's teaching and telling stories. And this one guy comes up to him and he says, hey, Jesus, I've got a burning question. It's in my heart. It's in my head. I've heard other people talk about it. I'm sure you've been asked before. Jesus, when all is said and done, how many people make it? When all is said and done, how many people find forgiveness? How many people experience salvation? How many people experience eternal acceptance? How many people find themselves in the presence of God and at the celebration forever and ever and ever? How many people make it? Well, I don't know about you, but if we would have stopped reading with the question, my guess is we'd be looking for like a short answer, either a yes or a no or a number. Jesus, how many people are going to make it? Well, are only a few going to make it? No. A few going to make it? Yes. How many are going to make it? 16. 29, but he doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus never answers the guy's question. Guy says, how many people are going to, he doesn't tell him how many people are going to answer, how many people are going to make it. But he does something a lot more profound as he tells the story, he wants the guy to read himself into the story. So here's surprise number one. Jesus, how many people are going to make it? How many are going to go north? How many people experience acceptance and forgiveness and eternity with God? How many people get God's original intention forever and ever? Jesus says, hey, make every effort to enter the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and they won't be able to. Now, that's not really answering the guy's question. How many people are going to make it or only a few going to make it? He doesn't say that. But in a sense, he hints at the answer, doesn't he? Maybe we could phrase the answer something like this. Jesus, how many people are going to make it? Here's Jesus' answer. Fewer than most people think. That's why it's a narrow door, right? If it was a wide door, lots and lots of people, more people than you can imagine are going to make Jesus said, I oh, know, it's, it, it, it's, it's a little narrow door. That kind of hints at it's not a super, super giant number. Fewer than you think. I was uh, flipping through television stations the other night, and... Uh, as I was flipping through, I saw the headlines coming on this show. It was some kind of music show. And they were running down the best songs of 1979. And contrary to what most of you are thinking, I was alive in 1979. And I was thinking back to the, do you know what the number one song was in 1979? ACDC, Highway to Hell. 
And look, I don't know, but that, that is kind of a catchy song, right? And it's very biblical, by the way. It is very, what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter seven? There's a narrow door, but there's a highway going the other way. Enter the narrow gate. Wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. ACDC got it right. We should play that next week, uh, right? I mean, there's a giant, high, a big door and a giant highway. But there's a narrow door and there's a narrow path that leads to life. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about that, but like, why is that true? Why, is, why does the wide way lead to destruction? Why the narrow way lead to life? And what is the wide way? Like, what is that wide door? The Bible would say, every door beside Jesus. And the whole point of it being a wide door goes something like this. You can miss the target in an infinite number of directions. You can only hit the target in one direction. So it's a wide door leading to destruction because there is only one way to get to life. It's a wide. Now, what actually is that wide door then? And you know from your own experience that most people think it's a wide door. So you can do this this afternoon if you want, but if not, you can just imagine with me and you'll know it's true. Suppose we go to a King of Prussia Mall this afternoon. It'll be crowded because you can't go outside. Or maybe go to the Sixers game and while you're walking around the little area where you pick up food. And, and suppose we, we were going to take a little quiz and we were to ask people this question. Now, when you check out, are you going to go north or south? My guess is the vast majority of people, oh, I'm going north. Um, when I check out, I plan on being with God. I'm going to heaven. I know. I'm, okay, now, what exactly is your plan? Like, what's going to cause you to go north rather than south? They would probably say things like this. Well, I try to live a pretty good life. You can tell by looking, I'm a moral guy, right? I'm certainly better than my sleazy neighbor. Um, I can tell by looking, I'm a little better than you. I give money to people when they need it. You know what? I go to church sometimes. Look, I'm paying my dues here. I'm going to make it. Well, all of those answers from the Bible's perspective would all be attributes of the wide way. And we'll kind of figure that out a little later. The wide way is every way beside Jesus. The wide door is every door beside him. And one of the things that we say regularly goes something like this. Anybody can come. But all who come must come through Jesus. That's why it's a narrow day. Anybody can come. This is the most inclusive message possible. Anybody can come. But it's the most exclusive message. You've got to come through Jesus or you can't come. The narrow way and the wide way. How many people are going to make it? Fewer than most people think. But that's kind of sobering, isn't it? Well, how about the next verse gives us the next surprise. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Fewer than you think are going to make it. And there are no second chances. Once the door is closed, it's closed. We kind of hinted at that last week, right? There is a day when the invitation cannot be accepted. 
There is a day when the door can no longer be open. Now, thankfully, God is a God of second chance and third chances, and many of us in this room are living examples of God as a God of thousands of chances. But there is a day when those chances end. And I know speaking you know, to you guys and speaking to people in this country, but the American way is to find a way, right? And look, I don't have to believe all that Christian stuff. I'm, I'll find a way. If I get to that door and it's closed, believe me, I'll find, I, you don't know how good I am with words. Just wait till God gets there. I will find a way. I will convince him. Well, here's a little secret. Getting in once the door is closed is a whole lot more difficult than slipping into this country along the southern border, all right? You can't go to the next town down where there are no guards. You can't swim across the river. Once the door's closed, you can't get in, and there are no second chances. And again, boy, is that a sobering reality, right? The wide way goes something like this. Charles, I'm going to stand at that gate maybe, and there's going to be this giant scale there, right? This big, remember those old scale, those balance scales from chemistry? And I'm going to put all my good deeds on the one side. And boy, I've done a lot. I'm going to put, and all my bad, I've done a few bad. Now that's going to go on this side. And if my good stuff kind of outweighs the bad stuff, that door will swing open. I'll remind God of all the good stuff I did. You will not find that parable or that metaphor anywhere in the Bible. That's the wrong script, friend. That's the wide way. That's not the narrow way. There are no second chances. As sobering as that is, once the door closed, there is a day when the door closes and it will not be opened again. Surprise number two. Remember the guy says, hey, Jesus, when all's said and done, how many people are going to make it? How many are going to find forgiveness? How many are going to find acceptance? How many make it to God's party? How many enjoy the celebration of salvation forever and ever? How many people make it? Fewer than you think. No second chances. And look at this one. Well, Jesus, you don't understand. We ate with you, and you taught in our streets. I don't know you, but where you come from? Away from me. What do bocce and curling have in common, beside being really boring? If bocce and curling have this in common, you get points for being close. Isn't that right? Like, in bocce, your ball doesn't have to be touching the Pauline to get a point. In curling, you don't have to be in the little red center to get a point. You can be close and still get a point. So what's the third surprise? This isn't bocce or curling. Close doesn't count. You're in or you're out. It's not how close you came or how close you perceived yourself to be. Isn't that what they're saying? Jesus, wait a minute. How can I be excluded from the party? I went to hear you speak. I saw you do miracles. I applauded when that stuff happened. You led the singing, I sang. I even had a meal with you. Remember, you invited me, I came, you passed out the food, I was there. What do you mean I'm not included? You and I are tight. Well, close isn't good enough. I don't know about you, but that one, uh, is pretty concerning to me because there are lots of people that put on their lists about items that are going to cause them to make it. I go to church. I sit through really boring sermons. I sing those songs. I don't understand what the words are. I put my time in. Of course I'm in. What are they saying? Hey, I'm close. I'm hanging out. 
My body's in the right place every once in a while. Close may count in bocce. Close does count in curling. Close doesn't count in the kingdom. The door swings open if you're in Jesus and the door stays closed if you're not. And being close doesn't count. Pretty sobering. Some of you are sitting there thinking, Charles, it's a rainy day. Why are we doing this? Look, I had this planned before I knew the weather was coming, all right? I'm not trying to really depress you, but in order to make wise decisions, we need as much of the data as we can, right? And if you read through the Gospels, you'll discover Jesus gives people all the data they need to make really wise decisions. And all we're doing is saying, hey, before you make decisions on how you're going to live, make sure you have all the data, or at least all the data we can accumulate. This data is pretty important, right? Fewer people than you think. No second chances. Close doesn't count. Well, what's the third? The third surprise, or a fourth surprise, actually. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Now, most of you know this, but Jesus says this as pointedly as anybody else in the Bible. So if we're going to wrestle with all the data, we need to say it. Here's the fourth surprise. Hell is real. It's awful. And it's forever. You may not like that. I don't like that. But that's the reality. Jesus never shies away from it. Hell is real. It's awful. And it's forever. Now, I know that you can all come up with lots of questions. Well, what's hell? And who's going to be there? And how's it going to work? You know what? You can come up with a billion other questions about hell that the Bible doesn't answer. But you do know enough about hell from reading the Bible to know this. You don't want to be there. It's real awful and forever. And you don't want to be there. And lo and behold, a gracious, loving God has provided a way for you to never be there. There's an old uh, statement that I read that I, I really kind of like. It goes something like this. The only hell a Christian will ever experience is the dark side of life on earth. Now here's the flip side. And the only heaven a non-Christian will ever experience is what they go through in this life. Hell is real. It's awful and forever. You may not get all your questions answered, but we do know enough to know. It's a place you don't want to be, and you also need to know that God's provided a way for you to not have to go there. I read a sermon a long time ago, and I forget the exact title, but the point of the sermon goes something like this. The title, this isn't the title, but this could have been the title. Why Every Christian Should Go to Hell. I kind of like, I like titles like that. I'm thinking, well, I need to read that sermon, right? Um, here was the point of the sermon. Every Christian should go to hell. Because if we would spend just a couple of seconds there, it would radically transform how we live every day, how we treat our neighbors, how we follow Jesus, and everything that we allow to impact us and others. That's good, right? Hell is real, awful, and forever. And that's not just a message for people that aren't followers of Jesus. That's a message for us. Because sometimes, let's face it, 
We offer Jesus to our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors the way we offer ketchup for your cheeseburger, right? Hey, I got this cheeseburger. Would you like some ketchup when you, I don't like, oh, great, here, have it anyway. What? What? Suppose you're uh, looking out your office window uh, tomorrow at work, and uh, you see some guy slipping under your coworker's car. And he's got some kind of plier tool, and he's under there working on the car. He slips out, and he runs across the parking lot. Do you think you'd say anything to your coworker? I kind of suspect you would. You wouldn't say to your coworker, Hey, would you like a little ketchup for your cheeseburger? By the way, I saw someone under it's probably nothing. You just drive safely. Um, yeah, maybe continuing what Jesus started becomes much more passionate if we wrestle with the realities that hell's real, awful, and forever. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never entered Jesus the narrow door. You're just kind of checking this whole thing out. Well, you need the data too, right? The Bible says hell's real, awful, and forever. And You need to be real careful. You may not even believe that that message is true, but even if you think it might be true, you should probably do a little more research and figure out, is your plan on escaping that kind of syncing up with what the Bible's plan is? Because if the Bible's right, it'd be real important for you to have your plan sync up with the Bible's plan. Well, we have a a fifth surprise, believe it or not. Here's the fifth surprise, and this one's almost humorous. And by the way, People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south. They're all going to take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't seem to make sense. Here are all the Jewish guys keeping their nose clean, living inside the bounds, following the rules, learning the rules. And Jesus says to them, a lot of you guys may not make it. But people from the east and the west and the north and the south, they're all going to make it. Like, what? Now, look, I know diversity is really in in our culture, right? I mean, it's in in education, and it's in in the corporate world, and it's in in churches. We need to be diverse, right? And the Bible says that. We need to represent the diversity of humanity. At the end of ends, when you read in Revelation, it's a city, not a garden. The garden's at the beginning, the city's at the end. Cities are places of great diversity. God values diversity, and our culture values diversity, not so much in the first century. And so when these people would have heard, people from the north and the south and the east and west are coming, they would have known exactly what Jesus meant. Some riffraff were getting in. I mean, who in the world designed this system? Now, I know most of you don't use the word riffraff. That's kind of a word I like. So I did a little thesaurus work for you, just to kind of clear up any riffraff confusion. So here is what the thesaurus recommends for the word riffraff. It's a real word, by the way, riffraff, four Fs. So here we go. Here's what riffraff means. You can check it out. Scum undesirable, outcast, deplorable. They're the people that get in. And the guys asking the question, they're probably upstanding, moral, good Jewish guys, right? You know, they went through the bar mitzvah thing, trying to go through life. Jesus said, well, a lot of you guys aren't going to make it, but we, we, we got a real group of outcast, deplorables, undesirables getting into this party. I don't know how that strikes you. But I really like that surprise because I'm a whole lot more in that category than I am in the other category. Even a riffraff get in. That must have had this guy's brain on tilt, don't you think? He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. The really good guys, they don't get in. And some of the really bad, the guys that have never read the Bible, some of them are getting in. They don't know Moses. They're getting in. They've never heard of David. They're getting in. 
And the guys that study David and preach all the sermons on David, they're not getting in. How does this work? Yeah, how's that work? Well, if the really good guys don't get in, some of them, and some of the really bad guys, the scum riffraff, they do get in, it must be a grace deal, not a works deal. Huh, have you ever heard that before? That's the message Jesus is bringing, right? If anybody can come, anybody can come. But all who come must come one way, through Jesus. It's the most exclusive, inclusive message and principle ever in the world. Anybody can come. All who come must come through Jesus. That's the message. Even the riffraff get in. Well, there's one last one. You notice the award ceremony? Here's the award ceremony. When it puts it, when they get it up there, I'll get, oh, here it is. Indeed, those who are last will be first and first. Here's kind of the great reversal, right? Um, I was watching one of, just for a few minutes, watching one of those music award shows. You've seen those? They have like one of those on every night, I think. Uh, I think it was last weekend, flipping through the set, I got one. Um, and here was my question. Who gets to sit in the front row or like the first few rows? The really, really rich people, the celebrities, the ones that are going to perform next. Everybody, I mean, everybody in the front row, most of you, you know all their names, right? They are somebodies. They sit in the front row. Who sits at the head table at the big event? Well, they're all the somebodies, right? They're the wealthy ones. They're the celebrities. They're the ones that have jumped through the hoops. They're the ones that are successful. They're the ones that achieved. They're the ones that accumulated. We all know their names. Don't be surprised at this banquet that there's a great reversal. It wouldn't surprise me a bit that at this party, we don't recognize or could name one person at the head table beside Jesus. Kind of funny, isn't it? First will be last, last will be first. I was thinking about that last night as Jimmy Rollins uh, had his night at Citizens Bank. There were the obligatory big names, right? So Chase Utley comes on the screen and Ryan Howard's, oh, you know, great, it's good to have you, Jimmy, blah, blah, blah. But you notice when uh, Jimmy Rollins spoke, he named some people that I never heard of. Hmm. I'd be willing to bet that if, each of, that if I asked each of you to write on a piece of paper a couple names of the people that were most influential in your life, getting you on the right trajectory, getting you to the place that you are. I'd be willing to bet that most of us in this room would have no idea who those people are on your list. Those are the people that'll be in the front rows. Those are the people that'll be at the head table. Those that had circumstances and difficulties beyond what we know, but they were faithful followers of Jesus in the midst of them. Maybe some single moms, not able to make church every week because they've got so many duties and such, such little energy. Maybe people struggling in a really difficult marriage but hanging, it in, hanging it in there. Maybe people that volunteered when they really didn't have much energy to volunteer. Maybe people that risked embarrassment or ridicule by saying what needed to be said in the workplace. Taking a stand when things were going south. Maybe they're the people who are going to be at the head table. And those that are up front, whose names we all know, and those who kind of make a, made a living speaking and doing this, and they're celebrities, and we all know who their names are, maybe they're going to be way up in the cheap seat somewhere. 
don't know about you. That would be just like God, wouldn't it? The great reversal. The first will be last. And the last will be first. So we got six surprises. Let me just remind them. So how many are going to make it to the kingdom? How many are going to experience acceptance forever? How many make it to the party? How many make it to the celebration of salvation? Fewer than you think. No second chances. Close doesn't count. Hell's real, awful, and forever. Even the riffraff scum get in. Any word ceremony will blow your mind. Now, I know six things are hard to remember, so I don't trust you to remember six. I'm going to leave you with two. Two lessons from the six surprises. Here we go. First one. Repentance is required. Now, I know I say the word repentance. Hey, Charles, that's like a religious churchy word. I know. It didn't start out that way, but that's kind of how it wound up. Repentance just means a change. Repentance means you're headed in one direction and you change your mind, change your heart, and you go in a different direction. Remember driving before Waze and GPS? Remember that? We got lost all the time. Now at least you get called names when you miss the turn, right? Yo, pal, you missed the turn. Eventually screaming, yelling, yo, moron, you missed your turn. Go back. Well, it's called that voice on wait. They're calling you to repent. Turn. That's all I mean. Change your, change your heart, change your heart. Go in a different direction. But repentance doesn't tell you what you're turning to. It only tells you what you're turning from. Now, in the biblical context, we kind of know we're turning back to God. We're turning to Jesus. But the word in and of itself is turning from, but not turning to. That's why, theologically speaking, we have to marry faith to repentance. And theologians for decades have said, hey, repentance from sin, faith in Jesus, that's called transformation. That's conversion. That's how you enter the narrow door. That's how you experience acceptance and forgiveness and you get entrance into the party. That's how it works. Two pieces, turning from, turning to. Repentance is required. Oh yeah, and Jesus is the door. That's what the parable says. It'll conceal a whole bunch of stuff unless you got the guts to read yourself into the story. When you read yourself into the story, you say, huh, so what's my plan? What's my, did you notice Jesus won't let the guy off the hook? He raises the question almost in the third person. So Jesus, when all is said and done, who makes it to the party? Who experiences salvation, acceptance? Who gets all that stuff? Notice Jesus doesn't say, well, 197. No, Jesus says, you enter through the narrow gate, right? Jesus doesn't want his just kind of brainstorming through all these. How about you? So how about you? Repentance is required, turn from. Jesus is the only door, turn to. That's the faith part. Have you done that? Make sure your plan syncs up with the Bible's plan. That's called wisdom. And when you live like that, you continue what Jesus started. Oh, yeah. And as we continue what he started, we will experience that message and extend that message to people around because just like we sang this morning, in light of the bad news, the good news becomes great news. We didn't only sing it. We heard Jesus tell a story about it. Let's stand and pray. Jesus, thanks for your questioning answer to this guy's question. We confess that we sometimes ask the question. We certainly have heard the question, and now we've heard your answer. And your answer isn't theoretical. Your answer is very practical. 
have we admitted and have we accepted? Have we experienced turning from and turning to, entering the narrow gate, the door which is Jesus? That's how the celebration is experienced now and forever. Lord, thanks for including us in that. Thanks for issuing us the invitation. Help us to do the wise thing, to make sure that that's our experience, that's our destination, and that's the message in life that we live before this world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.